I tried to be the biggest partier and inviting all the kids to my room and, you know, had this, you know, kind of a wacky way of, of buying liquor when I was a, you know, definitely a high school underage kid. Worked fine, but not necessarily the best way to spend your, uh, your time and effort. And so I'm now coming home for three days and, you know, I have to explain why I'm there. And rather than, you know, reading the riot act and yelling at me, I said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, let me know what you decide you want to do. So that left me stewing in the, you know, I, could, I couldn't feel angry at them because obviously this is me at this point. And um, I realized that, you know, what I was doing right there clearly wasn't leading to anywhere I wanted to go. Mike Tukin is the CEO of Talent, a company with a billion dollar market value that helps customers take advantage of their data and apply it more effectively. But before kicking off a career that's included an executive stint at Microsoft and a turn as CEO of Rapid7, he was nearly kicked out of boarding school and had to figure out how to make a contribution as the runt of his Brown University rowing team. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. Tell a friend. Tukin joined the Fort Knox podcast to share a story that's not your typical wonderkin makes good tale. His story shows that when the pressure's on, believing in your unique talent can be the key to tilting the odds in your favor. It began with a jarring move to private school and a tough lesson in the best way to stand out. I went to a, a private school that was a, full of incredibly talented people. And, you know, for the first time, I had to figure out, you know, who, who was I? What was, what was my unique thing, right? How was I going to be different? Because when you're, in, you're a teenager, right? You're trying, on the one hand, to fit in because of peer pressure, but on the other hand, you want to stand out and be yourself. And you got to, to do that, you have to figure out, wh- who am I? What is myself, right? What sure. does that mean? And um, I went from being my, my previous, um, you know, vision of myself in my old high school was, you know, I was the class brain and most likely to succeed and all that kind of stuff. Well, I wasn't that anymore, right? Hmm. This, company, this school was full of absolutely brilliant kids from all walks of life. And so, I so why did you move from one school to the other? Uh, because it was a fantastic school. Mm. I mean, it really was. I thought, it, so this was in the strategic thinking part of my, uh, I thought that there was, um, it was going to give me the best setup for the rest of my life. And as a matter of fact, here's a great story that, that, um, um, that my dad, um, a, a, um, a deal that he made with me that I thought did really well, and it shows how he thinks. Um, he also knew how I was going to think too, so it worked out really well. <laughs> a lot of people that get, you know, go to the school get sent there by their parents, and they have a little bit of their chip on their shoulder. They're going to a fancy high school, and they're determined to screw it up to show their parents that you know they shouldn't have forced them to go to the school. Right? <laughs> really, really terrible outcome for what's really a tremendous opportunity. Right. And so what my dad did was he wanted to make sure that it was really my choice, and I was really dedicated to getting something out of the school. And this is important because it came up. A, couple of years later. <clears throat> um, but so what he did is um, he said, Mike, um, if you look at how much it's going to cost me to send you to the school, I could get you a brand new Mercedes 450 SL, which the car, by the way, he'd always been dreaming of getting for himself. 
Hmm. I can get that for you for less money than I'm going to spend in the next four years for this high school. So I'll tell you what, I'll give you the car if you don't go to the school, and I'm going to save money. Now, he knew I wasn't going to take the car. Huh. Um, but what that meant was that going to that school meant that, in my mind, I was giving something up, right? And so now I had to try to get something out of the school. And then, as I was going through the, the time of trying to find my way and say, what was my, who am I? What's, what's the unique thing that's me? Well, I tried, you know, if it wasn't going to be academics anymore, then it has to be something else. And so I tried to be the biggest partier and inviting all the kids to my room and, you know, had this, you know, kind of a wacky way of, of buying liquor when I was, a, you know, definitely a high school underage kid. Worked fine, but not necessarily the best way to spend your... Uh, your time and effort. Um, it, so long story. And then we we did a um, somehow as we're sitting around the room, uh, one of the guys in the dorm said, "Well, we should, you know, we should build some bookshelves." And turns out that you could build some bookshelves by taking some building material from piles that were sitting outside that, of course, belonged to the school as they're building different things. So mm. we all built bookshelves and. So needless to say, at some point, someone figured out that the bookshelves in all our rooms, which suddenly showed up over a weekend, probably came from the pile outside <laughs> door to door. Right. Uh, and so the, uh, they were, um, you know, so I, I, I came very close to getting kicked out of the school. Um, and um, so they, they sent me home for three days. Wow. Um, to, you know, as a suspension to think about life and think about, did I want to come back? Yeah. And here's another just fantastic move by my parents because suddenly I show up unexpected in the middle of a, of a school year and said, oh, you got So this was a boarding school, boarding as, school. as I started to clue in on when you mentioned yeah. the dorms, right? Yeah. So how old are you? You're 16? Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. And so I'm now coming home for three days and you know, I have to explain why I'm there. And rather than you know, reading the riot act and yelling at me, I said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, let me know what you decide you want to do. So that left me stewing in the, you know, I, could, I couldn't feel angry at them because obviously this is, this is me at this point. And um, I realized that, you know, what I was doing right there clearly wasn't leading to anywhere I wanted to go. And I was this close to being not the successful guy I wanted to be, but a high school dropout. Hmm. And that probably wasn't leading me in a good direction. So I looked at that and said, all right, let's, let's forget about some of the dumb stuff I'm trying to do. And let me actually take a, a real shot at this. And I, maybe I, I left off too soon saying, you know, I couldn't be academically one of the stars here. Maybe my goal, maybe I didn't set the goal the right way. Because, you know, when you think about it, there's smart people in a lot of different dimensions. Maybe I can choose one area and be the best at that. Hmm. I don't have to be the best at everything. Let me choose one and win there. So what did you choose? Physics. Why physics? Well, because I loved it. <laughs> and good reason. Well, they don't have, you know, computer science didn't really exist back then. They don't have engineering. And so physics was kind of the closest thing. And we had a great um, professor in that and really had a ton of fun. And um, ended up winning the physics prize and ended up in my last couple of years of school truly being actually one of the top students and, you know, winning some awards for that. So I was able to be, to get that turned around. But it took that experience of almost getting kicked out to force me to to really give it a shot, as opposed to just being intimidated by the other really smart people around me saying, geez, I could never be as good or as smart as them. Tukin's dad's influence stretched beyond the choice he'd laid out 
the choice that pushed his son to take responsibility for his poor choices and to make better ones. The father's journey to America laid the groundwork for the son's success. Your dad immigrated from Germany. Germany. Yes. And you would say that you have a different opportunity, privilege to take risk than he had. That's right. When you're coming over here for the first time from Germany, as he was, with a scholarship but no money in his pocket, and literally didn't have enough money to take a train, <laughs> he had to borrow money. I mean, this is really his story. Mm. And you know, he went from there where he had to get his footing here in the U.S. in a foreign country, not his native language. He had no family or support structure around him. He had a, he, his his wits and his education, and that was all he had. And what brought him here? Um, he um, came over here on a um, Fulbright scholarship um, because he was coming from Germany after the war. Right. And um, he was coming to learn engineering. And the idea at the time was he was probably going to go back to Germany and help rebuild Germany. That was what the Fulbright scholarships were all about. Uh -huh. He ultimately ended up taking a job at AT&T, um, which was a little bit of a loophole um, because AT&T was considered vital to the, the uh, national interest at the time. And so there was an, you know, an exemption clause saying if you took a job at a certain subset of, of industries or companies, then you uh, could choose to stay in the U.S. So he chose really, I think, more based on that particular opportunity than in a, a big strategic plan. But that, of course, completely changed his life and you know, created the opportunity that I had. Yeah. Where did he go from there? So he got a job at AT&T out of school. Yeah. Um, what, what level of schooling was he doing? Uh, that was a master's degree that he okay. went through. So he, he had a master's degree in electrical engineering, and um, he, um, he started and finished his career at AT&T. He had one job for his whole life. Wow. Um, and he, he you know, continued to build into you know, more and more responsibility in AT&T in you know, something that you really don't see very much now in a cradle-to-grave kind of way. Part of it because I think AT&T was a terrific environment for him, um, but also he, given the, 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 you know, the setup that he had, he came from absolutely nothing, built everything himself. He needed to provide for his family, and he really wanted to prioritize education above all. He felt like the opportunity he was able to create for himself through education was so important, he wanted to make sure that all of us kids had that same opportunity. So he you know, lived a lean lifestyle and really staged as much as he can to make sure that we had that opportunity. What did a lean lifestyle look like? We were living, I want to say, a, a comfortable um, middle-class life on the East Coast outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. um, he drove a Volkswagen Beetle um, that he uh, drove for probably 10, 12 years before he handed it down to my sister, actually. Got another one. <laughs> you like German cars. Yeah, he's pretty much been a German car uh, driver his whole life. But mm -hmm. he, his dream his whole life was to um, buy a Mercedes, but he never had one until after he retired. Hmm. And then finally he was at a point where he bought, uh, as it turns out, a Mercedes SUV, which he now still has, I don't know, it's probably 15 years uh, older or even 20 years old now as well. So he's, but he's always been very careful with his money. Um, and instilled that kind of discipline with us. But what that, what that base gave me was an opportunity to, I could now take more risk because I had that stability. I knew that if all else failed, we always had a home. 
There's always a bedroom I could always fall back to if I had to, right? Right. And I, I, could, I, I was never going to be out of food because he was living lean and making sure that was always available. And right? he didn't have that luxury. He didn't have that luxury. Today, Mike Tukin is the CEO of Talon, a promising technology company. What Talon does is we help companies take advantage of their data. Right? We're in a world right now that's all about using data effectively. It's, we call it being data-driven. And in every company, they have comp competitors that are incredibly data-driven. And so using data more effectively is how you win today and tomorrow. Um, and today that means using big data and using the cloud. That business for us has been growing over 100%, and that's been really driving our growth and even accelerating our growth over the last couple of years. I came in with a strong understanding of the data space because I'd worked at SQL Server mm -hmm. with Microsoft. Um, but really, more importantly, um, it was the general leadership skills that they were hoping I was going to bring in to be able to build the right team that we needed for talent. Because, you know, here's my basic philosophy of building a company, which the board shared at the time as well. There's three things to get right. The first and by far the most important thing is building the right team. If you build the right team, you're probably 70% of the way there to being successful. And it's a, it's a team that's not just a great set of individuals, but a team that really works together and supports each other in a true capital T sense of the word team. Mm -hmm. The second thing is building the right strategy. That's the chess match and understanding what your customers need, what the technology allows you to do, what your competitors are doing, and you know, what's your path? How are you going to be doing something uniquely different and better than the competition? And the last thing is execution. Be able to make a set of commitments each year, each quarter, and be able to deliver on them day in, day out, week in, week out. If you do those three things well, you'll probably be successful. Team, strategy, execution, very neat and tidy. Sounds like something he might have picked up in business school. Actually, he learned it after that close call in high school. He learned it in college, in a boat. My, my college counselor at the time um, was a very understanding guy. And I explained to him that I thought that I wanted to apply to um, you know, a school like West Point because I really need to, based on my kind of checkered experience in, um, in high school, I really wanted to make sure I was going to be disciplined and going to be on the straight and narrow for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he, you know, he wasn't clearly that bought into the concept, but he's like, well, why don't you, in addition, why don't you, you know, apply to Brown as well? I'm like, okay. And I kind of had Brown as kind of a second thought somewhere on the list. Um, and um, then the head of the college counseling group uh, came in and, um, you know, he asked for a meeting with me and I'd never met him before. And um, he said, Mike, I don't think you're cut out for West Point. And by the way, he was probably right. Why? Um, I, I probably would have resented the discipline imposed from the outside and the, the rigidity, hmm. right? What Brown ultimately ended up being such a perfect choice is because you can choose your own way again. Right. And if you choose the right way, it's a fantastic place. But it's, it's not because anyone's forcing you or telling you to. It's, it's, it's probably one of those wide open curriculums ever. Now, is that why he thought you weren't cut out for West Point? Uh, he actually didn't explain his reasons, and I was too angry at the time to ask. <laughs> but what he, did, what he said was, Mike, if you continue on your 
on your application to West Point, um, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send them not just the you know the front page of your transcript. I'm going to send them the back page as well. So the front page had all your grades, which were great. The back page had all my disciplinary stuff on it, which is almost as long as the front page, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so there was just no hope. I was just never going to get so it. So he really point. didn't want you to go to West Point. He really didn't want me to go. Well, I guess you would thank him now because you had a good time at Brown. I have never gone back to thank him, but he actually did me a favor. I don't know if he meant to do me a favor or not, but he actually did. <laughs> and you were on the rowing team. That was an incredible shaping experience for me, yes. Why? Um, rowing is probably the most transferable thing I did at Brown that really, you know, I can still think back on and, and still take lessons from now, you know, how many years later, 30 years later. Um, in rowing, first off, you're working as a team. It's the ultimate team sport. You win as a team. Mm -hmm. The entire boat crosses the line first, second, or third, or whatever. It's not like one person, you know, wins and the other guys, well, you all win together or you lose together. Mm -hmm. um, thing number two is it's just so, um, there's so many lessons to be learned about um, going after a distant goal, setting a goal, planning about how you're going to get there, having again the discipline and the and the um, perseverance to get there. Um, you know, you're. you're now, I've never I've never rode, but I've watched it on TV, usually around the Olympics, and it looks really tough. But I don't understand the strategy. So it seems like everybody needs to pretty much. Stroke at the same time. You got to be pretty strong, and you can't get out of breath and fall out of the boat. But other than that, where's the strategy? Here's where the strategy comes. I had the, the opportunity to be in the the kind of the rearmost seat, which is called the stroke. It's one where you're kind of setting the pace, and you're working with the coxswain who's steering mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, do, you know, build the strategy for the team. And um, the real the way to think about rowing is. Um, you can't row at your maximum pace for the entire way down the course. The course is 2,000 meters long. It takes roughly six minutes to get there. And so you can go for very short bursts of maybe 30 seconds or a minute at your absolute, you know, your head's exploding, your lungs are hurting. You know, that's your max, max, max beyond the red line. You can do that for short bursts. Hmm. So now the question is, when and how do you use those bursts? Uh -huh. Or do you not use them? Do you try to go on a steady pace and hope that slow and steady wins the race and you know, ignore everything else around you? What if somebody in the boat can go at that really maximum pace and, and is really strong for that period of time, right? And can go at that pace, for, but somebody else is really good endurance-wise and can keep a, a really pretty strong pace for an extended period of time. How do you decide what to do based on who you got in the boat? Yeah, but I think a lot of the boat selection um, and the training that you do will give you a, a much more similar profile than that. So you'll huh. select people that have, you know, that are really targeted around a six-minute kind of burst um, with you know flutters on top of that. Um, someone who really is kind of a marathoner kind of profile, as you're describing probably not ultimately going to be successful in a six-minute you know, uh, kind of experience. It's like a miler, right? Right. you got to have kind of a miler kind of profile. Um, and so, you know, then when you, at the college rate, at the college level, it's different internationally, but at the college level, everyone comes across the line hard, or off the line when you start hard, and then you settle down. And then, you know, how do you keep everyone's head in the boat? And if other people are moving around, say, we're going to run our race. And what we're going to do, when we go hard, we're going to all go hard together. And we're going to just put the stake in their heart then. 
and we're going to put the game away and wait for it. And when we go, go hard. Put everything on the line. Don't wait. Don't, don't hold it for the end. Mm. Right? And you just have to get everyone in that mindset of, I'm going to just completely put everything I have right then, right there, win the race. And we, we chose, as, as our team, um, our big push was in the middle of the race, in the 1,000-meter mark. And, um, of a how many meters? Of a 2,000 meters. Two, okay. So literally right smack in the <laughs> Right in the middle. So I didn't know if that meant like the, the beginning of the second, third, to the, but right, you right start smack going hard right in the middle. Okay. Yep. And the idea was that, you know, off the race, we were never, we were never the fastest off the, off the starting line. But we were settled in, we were in a rhythm, and, you know, as long as we were in the mix, half a length up, half a length down, you know, relative to the boat, if we're kind of in the mix. We could go hard. We could gain a full boat length, sometimes two. Hmm. And it, what what happens psychologically, particularly in college, when when you see someone when you're pulling what feels like as hard as you can, and someone moves that fast, that quickly, out that far, a lot of people just give up. Hmm. Oh, all right. There's no way I can catch them because look at how far they just moved. Right. Right. You're you you just crossed the halfway mark and you won the race. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. We did that at the Eastern Sprints. We did that at the Iron Two, the biggest races, um, you know, in the U.S. And we were out by a length or a length and a half, and one walking away. Fabulous races. Wow. Um, and then at the national championships, um, we tried the same stunt again. And you know, Harvard uh, had learned from us, having lost to us before, <laughs> and they went with us at the uh, at the halfway point. And when we came down. There were two of us were together. Everyone else was way back, and we were just going neck and neck with them down to the finish line. Probably the closest race of my career, and they won by you know probably a foot and a half over a two thousand meter race. Yeah. Wow. Heck of a race. Yeah, impressive. Uh, do you have a traditional uh, rowers build? Do I know? <laughs> it's a podcast, so people can't see. <laughs> Better coming from you than me. That's right. So, <laughs> I don't either, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and I perfect. Exactly. Um, so I, I'm 5'11". Um, the average person in my boat was 6'4". Um, I weighed 155 pounds. Whoa. Uh, the average person in the boat weighed 200 and... Yeah, actually, I'm sorry. It's, 195, a little less than 200 pounds. Um, and so by putting me in the boat, here's a way to think about it. Putting me in the boat, the average size of the entire boat came down by an inch and came down by five, point, five pounds. <laughs> I was that much smaller than the average guy. Um, our biggest person in the boat um, was 6'9 or 6'10 um, and 240 pounds. He was you know, just a monster. We called him Too Tall Ted. He's a super guy. <laughs> um, but, and so clearly, I wasn't in the boat because I was the biggest or the strongest. As a matter of fact, I was the smallest and weakest in the boat. Um, and that was a great learning experience for me because the only reason I was there was to lead the boat and help everyone behind me to be as successful as they could. If I could help them hit their maximum, that, would, that, that was why I was there, right? It wasn't because of me. And that was, that was fundamentally, that's what leadership is, right? Uh -huh. I'm not leading by being the biggest and the strongest. I'm leading by helping everyone else succeed and be better than they can be. These are things that I'm, I'm applying much more now than I did in my first management opportunity. But now, you know, the, really the, one of the most important skills of a leader, you know, leading a larger company is about 
um, creating belief, creating excitement, getting everyone motivated around the same goal, right? When you're, when you're in a rowing boat, all that stuff is, is almost taken for granted. You want to win the big races at the end of the season. We had a shared goal of winning the Eastern Sprints, winning the IRAs, winning the national championships. Beautiful thing about sports is the goal is simplified. The goal is there in front of you, right? <laughs> so it's all about getting put ball into basket. Yeah, and you get <laughs> or, <laughs> or goal or you know depending on yeah exactly. <laughs> right, so it's yeah. kind of there, and so you have a lot sort of tighter alignment naturally, but getting people excited about it and getting them really aligned around the how is what you do as a leader in a sports context. Mm -hmm. Well, in a business, you don't actually have that, so you have to you know. You have to get you know, alignment around what is the goal? What are we trying to do as a company? And why are we doing this? What's, what's, the, what's the why behind that? All right, if you had to give a pep talk to your 16-year-old self, what would you say? The self that was sitting at home for three days trying to figure out life? Or which, where was I at the time? That's kind pick, of important. Pick yourself. When did you most need the pep talk? Probably right around then. At 16, that was a time where that was a... Um, that was definitely an existential moment for me. Um, you know, what I would say is believe in yourself and, you know, figure out what's important, right? You can be more than you'd ever believe you could be. Keep the dream and go for it. Don't let anything get in your way, right? Don't worry about you know, what, what, what most people, I felt, and certainly myself at that time, they're worried about failing. I was worried about failing. I was, I was unwilling to go and give it my best shot to do as well as I could academically because I was worried about failing. I worried I might not be successful. Man, that sounds foolish when you say it that way. But I spent two years of my high school screwing around to avoid taking the chance I might fail. Right? See, that was you just getting that concept across and saying, you know what? Have confidence. Take a shot at it. What's the worst that can happen? Maybe you aren't the best in the school. Who cares? Probably learn something from that too, right? Right. But trying means that you're probably going to be somewhere in the mix. You're not going to be in the bottom 10%, which is where <laughs> I was right then, right? Yeah. And so it's still a better outcome than anything else you could be doing. So take a shot at it, right? That's what I would have said. Well, you learned the lesson. You went out for the rowing team. I did. Not the most obvious. <laughs> I had 5'11 and 155. <laughs> and you are the CEO of Talent. Mike, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you, John. My thanks to Mike Tukin. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.